All right, friends, let's, um, let's come grab a seat and get started this morning with Sunday School. We're going to begin today by praying Psalm 37, which is on page 797 of your Trinity Hymnal. Psalm 37. The Tenth Commandment has all to do with um, our desires and the way in which we are called to trust God with our desires rather than um, accomplish them in ways that are unrighteous. And so Psalm 37 meditates on that theme, on the trustworthiness of God, um, given the ways in which um, people have all sorts of different things, and yet we're called to trust God with what he has given us. Psalm, one, Psalm 37, Let me, I'll pray the first part, y'all respond with the bold portions. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Refrain from anger. Um, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. If the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his steps firm. I was young and now am I, I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. Turn from evil and do good, then you will dwell in the land forever. They will be protected forever, but the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. The mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks what is just. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, seeking their very lives. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in its native soil. Consider the blameless, observe the upright. There is a future for the man of peace. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. Amen. We pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for this Lord's Day. We thank you for your faithfulness to your people. You called us to gather this day to worship you, and you've given us even this time 
um, to consider um, your law, your word, um, which is um, sweet in our mouths, um, like honey, Father, to us. Um, for we know that it brings us life. And so we pray this morning as we study the Ten Commandments, or the Tenth Commandment, rather, Father, that you would enable us um, to grow to be more and more those people who trust you with our desires and um, seek um, contentment uh, fully in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask, uh, let's see, Jeremy and Donovan, maybe, you all help me pass out some sheets, and you can put whatever's left over just on the sound booth. Um, so that folks can get them as they come in. <clears throat> All right, so we are looking today at the Tenth Commandment. We've um, come to the final of the commandments. We have one more week in this Sunday school class. Next week we'll do a sort of uh, wrap-up conclusion. We'll look at some of what the Westminster Larger Catechism has to say about um, different sins and how we think about sin and what it looks like to be forgiven by God for our sin. Um, but today we'll wrap up the Ten Commandments by looking at the Tenth Commandment. I'm going to start by reading it. It um, varies a little bit in its two um, iterations in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And so let me just read it. Um, Exodus 20 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And then Deuteronomy 5:21, And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So this time, wife comes first. And you shall not desire. And that is a different word in the Hebrew, a closely related word to covet, but different. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Um, I, I start with this um, first question, is the 10th commandment the most overlooked commandment? I, I think there's an argument to make um, in that regard. Um, we you know, easily come to the idea, you know, do not murder, um, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Um, those commandments come quickly to our minds, but do not covet. Um, that's something that uh, maybe feels a bit more abstract. Um, it's not, certainly not, I think, in the forefront of our minds as much as some of the other um, commandments are. Um, it's interesting, if you look at the ancient Near Eastern laws, um, um, do not covet has no parallel um, in other um, laws of that time and period. Um, you know, the, the code of Hammurabi or, you know, different things that, that are out there that you can, Egyptian law code, that kind of thing. You can find um, laws that have to do with murder or adultery or theft, um, those kinds of things, of course, or, or deceit. Um, but, but there's nothing similar to you shall not covet. This is um, pretty utterly unique, um, this law that is given to Israel. It's like the Sabbath law in that way. Um, the Sabbath law, of course, is also utterly unique in, in its, in its um, uh, announcement to Israel. There's nothing like it in the ancient Near East. Um, uh, there's no parallel um, in other uh, forms of law that exist um, in that time period in the world. I think um, as we wrestle with the, the, this commandment, of course, one of the fundamental questions is what does coveting mean? Um, it's not a word that we use frequently in our, um, our speech with one another. Um, maybe it's even a little bit archaic in terms of um, actual usage in our language. We don't talk about coveting a lot. Um, essentially, coveting means to desire. Um, 
And, and you can see that parallel even in Deuteronomy 5, 21, the, the parallel statements, you shall not covet your, father's, your neighbor's wife, rather, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house. There's a, a parallel there. Um, coveting, in many ways, is just, it's desiring. It's, it's yearning for something. It's longing for something. It's setting your heart on something. I'm believing that if only you had that, then you would be happy. Um, you would be at peace um, if you had that thing. Um, it is to... Um, to reach out for something in your heart and that you do not currently possess and desire it for yourself. Um, essentially, that's what coveting is. Um, and the ethical quality of coveting, and this is important to say, there are times in the Old Testament where the Hebrew word that is translated covet in the 10th commandment is translated simply as desire in other places. Um, often we think of covet, ha covet having a sort of negative connotation and desire having a more positive connotation. But the, the point is, is that the Hebrew word is used in both ways in the Old Testament, the same word. Um, and, and whether it's a, a good thing or a bad thing depends on the context, right? Um, whether it's a, a good desire or, a, an, or an illicit desire, a desire that is um, off limits to us um, because it is uh, wrong. And so the, the ethical quality, I want, to, I want us to think about that, that, it is that there are such things as, as, in a sense, good coveting, um, this doesn't say thou shalt not covet. This says thou shalt not covet things that your neighbors neighbors possess, right? That belong to someone else. Um, certainly there are good desires that we should have, but it is not good to desire um, something that is not, um, that belongs to someone else. Something that's been given to someone else is not for us to even desire. Um, for example, it is not wrong for an unmarried man to desire an unmarried woman or vice versa, right? That's, a, that's an appropriate thing um, for a, a young man to, to look at a young woman and to desire um, her. Um, I'm not talking about lust here, right, of course. I'm not talking about, um, you know, imagining sexual relations with her. I'm just saying desire, just wanting to be close, wanting to know her, wanting um, even to, to marry her. And if the same would be true for a young woman with a young man if they're both unmarried. Um, that is an appropriate desire. That's not covetousness. That's how people get married, right? Because they desire one another and they um, orient their life around that desire. And importantly, also, it's not wrong for a married man to desire his own wife, right? It's not wrong for you to, um, to, to want her and to desire her, um, to be protective of her. And, and the same, same thing is true of um, an, a married woman for her husband. Um, it is not wrong um, to desire these things. Uh, and, and even more broadly than that, we would say it is not wrong for anyone to desire friendship or acknowledgement by others or wealth in itself or success or authority or children or sexual intimacy or any number of the good things that God gives us desires for in this world. It is not desire that is wrong, that is prohibited, um, by the 10th commandment, the problem becomes when we desire things or objects or people or gifts or experiences or status that God has given um, to someone else, and we want it. We want it for ourselves. Um, and we'll get more into kind of what that means. Um, but I, I really think that distinction is important for us to think when we come to the the 10th commandment, that it's not desire that self is being prohibited. It's desire um, for things, not, it's not even desire for things that we don't have because there are some things that we don't presently have that the Lord might give us um, in time in appropriate ways. And it's not wrong for us to desire that. It's not wrong 
to desire a promotion at work. It's not wrong to desire um, whatever it might be. Um, the problem becomes when we desire things that belong to other people, things that God, and not just that they belong to other people, but that God has in his providence given to other people. Um, that has been being when the desire becomes illicit. Um, one of my friends is a pastor of a pastor named Rich Lusk, a friend of mine in um, Birmingham, um, whom I think highly of. Um, he summarizes the 10th commandment this way. He says, the 10th commandment means we must be content with what God has given us and rejoice in our neighbor's prosperity. We must be content with what God has given us and rejoice in our neighbor's prosperity. And as we'll see, Lusk is really taking that from um, the Westminster Larger Catechism and summarizing it. But I think that's a really good summary of the kinds of things that the 10th commandment calls us to positively. Um, it's not just a prohibition, it's also a positive command. And the positive command is being content with what the Lord has given us and rejoicing when our neighbor gets something good, even if it's something that we want, right? Um, let's say that you're an unmarried woman and you desire to be married and um, all your, you know, friends um, keep finding husbands and you spend a summer, right, the summer of marriages, right, and maybe you're even the bridesmaid um, at many of those marriages. And you can imagine, you know, sort of some of the tension of that um, for a young woman in that position or a young man in, in a like position. Um, but I think what the Tenth Commandment is saying is that part of what it, what it is about is not only not coveting that um, friend's spouse um, or fiancé, but actually being glad for them, right? Being happy that this, the Lord is giving your friend um, the desires of their heart, even though he hasn't done the same for you in exactly the same way. Um, I think um, um, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but embedded in the 10th commandment is an assumption that not everyone is going to get the same amount of things in this life, right? <laughs> There's not gonna be equality. Um, of experiences or relationships or wealth or um, intelligence or opportunity um, or uh, success or whatever it might be, that there are going to be in God's wisdom and God's providence, right? If you have a problem with this, take it up with God. Um, he's the author of this. Um, there, there's this assumption that, that peop some people are gonna have quote unquote more of their desires fulfilled than others. And what do you do with that tension and that reality? And the 10th commandment says, we must be content with what God has given us and rejoice in our neighbor's prosperity. And we'll unpack that statement a little bit more. Um, any questions or thoughts about anything I've said before we move on? Start jumping to these six points. Yes. Right, but it's sitting there in the lot. Nobody's bought it yet. Right. Right. Right.
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the way I would comment on that is, I mean, if, is that I think it gets to that reality of contentment. I mean, this is this is this is the tension that all of us live with. Um, all of us live with unmet desire, right? Um, in this life, um, and not all of those unmet desires are wrong in and of themselves. And yet, God, and so God doesn't say you need to not desire things that you haven't been given. But God does say clearly again and again, you need to be content with what I have given you and what I have, um, how I have distributed my gifts to you. Um, and so that's where I think you would run afoul, even if it's a, a, a good thing that you want that doesn't belong to somebody else. Um, still, there could be a there's a there's a potential for sin there for sure. Yeah. Jeremy. Yes. And the way that there's a it's easy to see it in the way that there's violence in the church. It's easy to see sure. in the government that like even the talk about itself, it's like one thing and it like it distracts you from all the right things. But it's like so much of the way that the Catholic Church and Catholic Church church and the Catholic does seem to get into it in the right way is by like wanting by not wanting to like raise that, but it seems to be doing it in the right way. Well, I think part of the way that the Tenth Commandment relates to life and community is that we know how um, threatening envy and rivalry and desiring things that belong to other people, how threatening that is to the health of a community. Um, and I think this is supposed to be one of the differences between the Christian community and for example, the community you might find in your workplace, right, where it's likely that people are envying one another and in rivalry with one another, that kind of thing. The church is meant to be a different kind of community where we are not plagued by that kind of, um, even not only external actions, but internal affections. Let me, let me move into this. I think some of this will become uh, more clear as we, as we talk. The 10th commandment, it's important to notice this, serves as a kind of foundational protection for the 5th to ninth commandment. Um, what I mean by that is that all rebellion, murder, adultery, theft, and false witness begins in desire for something that belongs to someone else. Um, and and we, so we begin with the desire and then we are led into the sin. Um, uh, James uh, 1.14 um, describes, and 15 describes this, um, the apostle James in his letter, see if I can turn there. So James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And of course, um, a, a you know, really remarkable example of this is in Genesis 4, um, where Cain sees that Abel's sacrifice is accepted and not his, and his countenance falls, and he longs to be in Abel's place, right? He wants what Abel has um, for that good favor with God, essentially. And that, that, that desire, that covetousness is in his heart, and the Lord comes to him and says, you know, be careful. Um, your sin is crouching at your door, and it, it wants to possess you. And, and, of course, Cain does not put his covetousness to death, and so... 
um, he puts his brother to death. He goes out into the field and, and kills his brother. Um, another really classic example of how um, the 10th commandment leads to other forms of sin when we um, don't, don't follow it, when we sort of play nice with the 10th commandment is in um, 1 Kings um, 21, the story of the vineyard of Naboth. Um, and actually, I won't take the time to read it, but, but essentially what happens is, is Ahab is king of Israel. He wants the vineyard of Naboth. Um, Naboth refuses to sell it to him because it belongs to his family and he's not supposed to sell it according to the, the law. Um, it's supposed to remain in perpetuity for his family's ownership. Um, Ahab is really sad. Jezebel comes to him and says, why are you so sad? He says, I want this field and Naboth won't give it to me. It's so unfair. And, um, and he just like, he's like literally moaning in bed, right? Because he can't have this vineyard, um, which is a really dramatic picture of what goes on in our hearts often um, when we don't have things that we desire, right? Um, that kind of, um, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting example of that, right? It kind of confronts us with some of the, um, the dynamics of that longing for something that is not given to us. Um, and his wife Jezebel says, hey, that's no problem. Um, we'll get that for you. And so they find false witnesses um, to, um, blast or to say that, that Naboth is a blasphemer and a traitor um, to Israel. And um, they agree, and, and Naboth is put to death um, because those are capital crimes in Israel. And then um, Ahab and Jezebel go and buy the vineyard, and they have it. So you see, so the desire leads to um, breaking the ninth commandment, um, breaking um, the sixth commandment, breaking the eighth commandment, um, all so that, that this vineyard can be possessed. And that's, that's what we're talking about here is, is the the link between um, covetousness and those other um, commandments is really important for us to consider. And of course, that's why the 10th commandment is here. Um, it's to, to cut off these sins at their root um, so that we might not be led astray. Um, the 10th commandment, I would say the second point here, um, intrudes into the inward motions and affections of our hearts. That's the language of the catechism. Um, it's fascinating, right, how intrusive the law of God really is, if you think about it. Um, God is not content simply with um, outward compliance um, or, or, you know, just, just outwardly being kind to people or not um, taking things from them or, or even just speaking the truth. What God wants is even more than that. He wants our hearts to be oriented in right ways um, towards others. Um, he wants us to actually be content. And this, you know, I've said this many times, but Jesus, it's important to remember, was not an innovator in the New Testament when he talked about the commandments having to do with the heart, right? The, this was always the way that God's law functioned um, from it was given, um, that God was always concerned about the heart, not only outward actions and behaviors, but actually the ways in which our hearts are oriented towards him and towards others. Um, but it's important to wrestle with that, that God is intrusive, right? Um, he intrudes even into the corridors of your secret desires. Even those things um, God knows. And I say here this comment too, I say also even our secrets are not very secret because they are known to God. And often they're betrayed more than we think by our actions, right? Most of us are way less subtle than we think we are um, in terms of what we actually want in our lives. Um, it's, it's, so it's, yeah. So I think that's just something to think about, that, that God is intrusive, but in the same ways, he's also inviting us to live with integrity before him.
um, to be open and honest before him about our desires that we might put our illicit desires to death. Let me read the Westminster Larger Catechism um, as kind of a bridge to the next points that are coming. So what are the duties required in the Tenth Commandment? The Catechism says the duties required in the Tenth Commandment are, and I love the positive way it puts this, such a full contentment with our own condition and our own present circumstances, a full a settledness, right, a kind of um, acceptance, but not even just acceptance, like a gratitude for. I think all of those things are part of contentment, right? Um, a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of our whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections, and that, that's just archaic language for describing the, the corridors of your heart, right? Your, your hidden desires, your what's going on under the surface, as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. And so we are um, happy when our friend gets married, even though we're not. We're happy when our friend um, publishes a book, and we would really love to publish a book, but we're happy for them. And we're happy when our, our friend has a child, and I mean, this is a really hard thing, but this is what the Tenth Commandment calls us to, to rejoice when our friend, the Lord, gives our, even their fourth child, right? And we're still waiting for our first. Um, still, that's what the Tenth Commandment calls us to, to delight and rejoice in the prosperity of our neighbor um, while being content with what God has actually um, given us. What is forbidden? What are the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are discontentment with our own estate. So, so not being grateful for what God has given us, um, not being sort of settled and at peace um, with what the Lord um, has done in his providence in our lives, um, being yeah, un unsettled, being um, not having that kind of gratitude, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor. Right, so when someone something good happens to someone else, um, we want it, or we're saddened by it. Right, we're saddened by um, other people's flourishing. Other, the, when God blesses others, that makes us sad, um, weep even, uh, grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is His. And so that's speaking to the more literal component of the command. Um, Motions and affections, again, just have to do with inward desires um, to anything, in all inordinate motions and affections to anything um, that is his. Any questions about the commandment there? Or, I'm sorry, the catechism there before we continue on thinking about this? Oh, sorry, Kim. There you are. What's going on? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, so Kim asked, what, how does this connect with psalms that talk about this, where the psalmist says, um, you know, I, I see the wicked and they're flourishing and, and I'm confused by that um, or even frustrated by that. And I think, I think part of what prayer gives us is a way to cry out to God um, about the, quote-unquote inequalities of his distribution of graces and gifts 
And I think that's what you see the psalmist doing there. And so I certainly don't think the 10th commandment um, requires us to be dishonest with God about what it is we actually want. Do you know what I mean? Um, if we do find ourselves frustrated by um, someone else's prosperity, I think the appropriate thing to do according to the 10th commandment is, is not to sort of cling to that and hold on to that and nurture that in our hearts, but to genuinely go to God and say, Father, I, I want to trust you, right, with my life, but I need your help. I, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. You know, I've wanted this thing and it's been given to someone else. And so I think the Psalms do give us a way to articulate the reality of our hearts towards God um, rather than just sort of nurture that disappointment or that confusion or that sadness. Um, and I think, I think we all can kind of instinctively maybe know the difference, right, between those two things, what it looks, we've all done it. We've all had desires that have not been fulfilled, and when someone else gets those things, we know what it is to sort of meditate on that and ruminate on it, right, and just sort of, but it's a, I think it's a different thing to go to the God with it and to confess it to him and to ask him for help, which is basically what the psalmist is doing there. Yeah, that's how I'd answer that. Yeah, Scott and then Ma Matt. Good point. He sees it as he wickedly rewarded in spite of his wickedness. You know, his unjust, injustice there is that he possesses something that he shouldn't have. He should be punished for what he did. And often the Psalms, the psalmist takes Jesus, Jesus says, don't worry, like I think they do in the Yeah, Psalm 37 has it, right. That's a great point. Yeah, the, the Psalms in particular, yeah, he's, he's not just wanting what the wicked have, but he's confused by how God seems to be blessing them. And certainly the answer the psalmist is, receives and gives is that God will ultimately judge. Do you have a comment, Matt? Yeah. So Matt is asking about really difficult things, providences in our lives, a, a death or, or a, 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 you know, really severe sickness or, or something like that. What does it mean to be content, essentially, in those situations? So what I would say for you to that, Matt, is that, I mean, this is a really difficult thing pastorally. Um, and really much of my pastoral work is oriented around questions like these, right? Um, people who are in circumstances like this that are very hard. And what I would say is that um, God gives us room to cry out to him and to ask for our circumstances to change in ways that we desire it. But he also commands us and calls us to contentment with what he has given us um, in the present and in the past, right? We don't know the future 
the future is sort of open, and so we're in, encouraged, actually, I think, to pray boldly for the future to be different, right? For the trajectory to change, for our, our sick child or whatever to get well, um, because we don't know the future. Um, we don't know what wisdom God has for us in the future, but we know the wisdom that God has in terms of our past and our present. And I think certainly the scriptures command us to submit even to his providence and to actually be content, um, be grateful even um, for what he has given um, to us. Um, and that is, but that is the deep challenge of contentment, right? Um, is, is living in that tension. It's really easy to resolve that tension one way or the other, just to be kind of fatalistic and say, well, whatever happens is what happens, you know? Um, I don't think the scriptures call us to that. Um, and I also don't think the scriptures call us to just sort of rage against God all the time, you know? Um, it calls us to a, a settledness, a contentedness that also sees the future as beyond our knowledge. And so we ask for God to do the things that we desire. And that's what prayer is, right? We're trying to change the future. Um, do you it's the book of Job, yeah, sure, absolutely. Do you have a comment or question, Trudy? Yeah, yeah. so Trudy's saying part of the secret of contentment is locating our contentment in God and his character and faithfulness and, and person rather than in our circumstances, which I think is certainly true. Let me, let me t this next point has to do with contentment, so let's talk about this for a minute. Um, there is a deep connection, I argue, between, and the catechism argues, um, between the tenth, and I'm so glad the catechism does, this is just one of the million reasons why I think the Westminster Larger Catechism is so useful and helpful for us pastorally um, and spiritually in our lives, it, it, there's nothing like it. Like in all of Reformed confessions and you know, the larger catechism is really unique and particularly its exposition of the Ten Commandments. There, there's nothing like it in other Reformed documents of the time. And it's, I just would really commend it to you as a, as a resource, I think it's so helpful. Um, but I love the way that zeroes in on contentment because that is the heart of the issue really when it comes to the 10th commandment. It's about contentment with what God has given us. Um, so there's a deep connection between the 10th commandment and, and contentment. Um, in a sense, contentment, I say, is, is a secret not only to happiness and joy, but also to holiness. For contentment indicates a trust in God's goodness and wisdom and a fundamental gratitude for all his grace toward us. And I think this is really important for us to reflect on. Um, those who you know who are truly happy and at peace and joyful are content with what God has given them. And if you think about their lives, there's certainly things that the Lord hasn't given them, right? Um, happiness and joy and peace, as anyone knows, is not found, you know, you can't do a spreadsheet and you sort of track it along a line of people's income, right? Um, that is not how happiness and joy and peace works, um, or whatever the thing is that you want to make the trajectory. 
um, it's not the circumstance, right? It's something, it's the quality of the person's heart and what God has done in their heart. Um, and I really would argue that, that if you want to be happy and joyful and at peace, then contentment and gratitude is the way you get there. Um, it really is. It really is. It's really that important. And I think this is because contentment, as I say here, is the place where we, the rubber meets the road about what we actually believe about God. Like, do we actually believe God is wise and good? Our level of contentment is actually reveals that, what we actually think about God and his wisdom and his goodness. Um, because it forces us to wrestle with God's providence in our lives, right? That he has actually ordained our lives for our good. Do we actually believe that? Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's what we believe that God does, that he, um, in a holy way, in a wise way, in a powerful way, preserves and governs everything that happens in your life. Heidelberg Catechism puts this even more sort of personally, which I appreciate. Question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? This is a question to really meditate on and memorize, I think. The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand, right? Personally, God is doing these things. Heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that by that leaf and blade, ruin, I'm sorry, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. In fact, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Um, Luke 12 is a really remarkable exposition of this reality. Um, it begins, it's worth taking a moment, I think, to, to consider it. Um, Luke 12 starts, um, the, 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 the sort of tension of the passage begins, um, where a man says, uh, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, right? He wants something that he doesn't have. Um, But Jesus said, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to him, he said to them, to the crowd, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And don't just read possessions there, but read whatever gift, right? Whatever the thing is, uh, one's relationships, one's capacities, one's status, uh, one's house, um, one's family, um, whatever, you fill in the blank. One's life does not consist in the abundance of these things, Jesus says. And then he tells the story of the rich fool Um, who dies. And then he says in verse 22 to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And here's the question that cuts the heart, right? And which of you, by being anxious, 
can add a single hour to the span of his life. And then if you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? I mean, essentially what he's saying is, which of you thinks that you're God, right? You know you're not God. But when you give yourself over to this kind of way of life, you're trying to be God, right? When you want things that aren't yours, that God has given to someone else, and you become obsessed by that or driven by that in a deep way. You're trying to be God. You're trying to rearrange God's providence. Um, and he's saying you, it's, it's fruitless. It's pointless. You can't even do it. So don't do it. Why are you anxious about these things? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, right? They're not anxious about growing. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in his, all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And then he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Right? And I love the way that command, because it gets to the heart, because I think fear is at the heart of the Tenth Commandment and of so much anxiety, right? Fear that if we don't do all the things in the right order and cover all the bases, we won't get ahead, right? We won't achieve the things that we desire. We won't have our we won't be satisfied. It's fear that we're going to mess it up. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid about that. Because your father, it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom, right? He's planning on giving you far more than you could even imagine with your tiny little perspective on what it is that will make you happy. Don't be afraid. God's got far more um, for you than you can imagine. So I just would encourage us to think about that, about contentment and the calling, the command that it actually is in the scriptures to be content. It's not just sort of a optional sort of thing for super Christians. Like it actually is something all of us are called to, contentment. Um, what has God given you, I say? This is what the scriptures teach. God has given you everything you need to rejoice and be glad in him. Rejoice, says Paul, right? Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice always in the Lord. Has God given you everything you need to rejoice and be glad in him? Do you believe that? Because I think that if you believe God is good and wise and powerful and loves you, then you will believe that. Because how could he do anything else if that is who he is? Um, the Tenth Commandment, I say here, is also deeply connected to how we relate to our neighbor and the unequal distribution of God's gifts. And this gets back to some of the points Jeremy was bringing up about community, life and community. Um, assumed in the Tenth Commandment is the reality that in his wisdom, like God does these things on purpose, right? They're not by accident. Um, God gives each of us different blessings, different responsibilities, different relationships, different possessions, um, we could say different families, different marriages, um, different levels of authority, different gifts. I mean, just all sorts of things, right? There are all sorts of distinctions between us um, as human beings. And our right posture towards our neighbor is summed up in these words in Paul's command. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I think it's fascinating that Paul puts it that bluntly because we are tempted, I think, if we're honest, to weep when others rejoice, or even 
if we're really honest, to rejoice when others weep, right? I mean, I know that I've experienced this. I'll be on, you know, I'll acknowledge that. Um, that when bad things have happened to other people, I've been happy sometimes, um, sinfully, wrongly, because, you know, well, if I'm not going to get that thing, at least they're not, right? At least they're not going to have that experience, um, or at least that thing that I wanted that they had is now taken away from them, so we're back on e- equal footing. Um, I think we just really need to think about those things. Or I'm glad that didn't happen to me, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we really need to think about the ways in which that's not good, right? Like that's not that's not just some sort of like thing that is in our hearts that you know who cares? We all sort of feel that way sometimes, but no, God's saying like that's a that's a wicked thing to feel that way, um, to delight in your neighbor's misfortune, um, to refuse to rejoice in their prosperity. Um, that that actually reveals the the wickedness of your heart, and we need to put it to death because it can lead to far worse sins um, if we're not careful. And it leads to us being unhappy. I mean, that's the other thing it leads to. It's not good for us either, personally. Um, but I really think that is something to think about as we live in community with each other, even a community like ours, which is fairly small as a church, um, I really long for us to be this way, to be those who rejoice in the prosperity of others, who genuinely weep um, when others suffer and enter into those things fully. Um, The 10th commandment, I say, requires the humility to both trust God with our story and to leave the stories of others to him as well. And this is, I think, a really fascinating thing. Um, John 21, that's a remarkable, uh, God bless Peter, you know, um, because he just says what we all think, and then we get to see how Jesus handles it, um, which I'm really grateful for. Um, So, John 21 is the story of the restoration of Peter, right? The Lord comes and makes he and his friends breakfast, and then he pulls Peter aside and says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, um, restores Peter to himself, and then he gives this prophecy about Peter's future. Um, He says, truly, truly, I say to you, and he's speaking to Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John, probably because he outlived Peter, writes this parenthetical comment. This was this Jesus said to show by what kind of death he, that is Peter, was to glorify God. So John probably knew that because he witnessed it or heard about it um, in his life, Peter's death. Um, and after this, Jesus said to him, to Peter, follow me which is the fundamental command all of us are given, right? Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? That's referring back to the conversation at the Last Supper. When Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me, right? He's saying, I don't know, Peter, maybe I'm going to make him live forever, right? And he's never going to experience death. 
I mean, that's what he's just been talking to Peter. That's not just a random comment that Jesus makes there. He, he's just told Peter that he's going to die, um, probably in a painful way. And he says, well, Peter, I don't know. Maybe I'm just going to spare that man from death itself. You know? What is it to you? You follow me. You follow me. Um, and I think that's a really fascinating story, right? Um, because that's a lot of times where these things come from. This kind of rivalry that exists in communities between people is we want to know what is God doing in their life. You know, what, what's, what's happening um, with them? And, and the answer that the Lord gives is that's not for you to know, right? That's not knowledge that is given to you, and it, it's not important. You need to trust me with their, with their life, with their prosperity, with what I'm doing um, in their hearts, right? I mean, you might look at our neighbor who seems like they're getting everything, right, that you want, and God says, trust me with it. Trust me with it. It's okay. It's not for you to know. Um, C.S. Lewis, in what is the best story of his Narnia novels, um, A Horse and His Boy, <laughs> um, not necessarily the best of the seven, but I think the best plot for sure. Um, towards the end of it, there's this Erevis, this girl who, who escapes from her you know, wealthy family to run away, and she does it by dr- drugging um, her servant and, um, so that she slept all day and so she could escape. And when she, the servant woke up, she was punished by um, her, her mother. Um, and so Aslan um, has pursued her and he has wounded her with his claws. Um, and um, now he catches up to her and he says, he explains his actions to Erebus. He says, it was I who wounded you, said Aslan. I am the only lion you met in all your journeyings. Do you know why I tore you? He says, no, sir, she says. The scratches on your back, tear for tear, throb for throb, blood for blood, were equal to the stripes laid on the back of your stepmother's slave because of the drug sleep you cast upon her. You needed to know what it felt like. Yes, sir, please ask on, my dear, said Aslan. Will any more harm come to her by what I did? child, said the lion. I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story but their own. I think that's a profound statement. Um, I think it's obviously rooted in John 21 and Lewis's knowledge of that story in the scriptures, but it's profoundly wise. Profoundly wise for us to take that statement and meditate on it. No one is told any story but their own. That's the story you should be concerned about, is your story. Because that's the story that God tells for you. And you're never going to know other people's stories in the same way. And that's a gift, actually. It's a gift to be human and not God. It really is. If we had the power to orient, to make our lives whatever we wanted them to be, friends, we would not do a good job, right? We would not do a good job with the story of our lives, much less the story of other people's lives. Um, It is a blessing to not be God. How do we keep the 10th commandment? How do we do this? And this is really hard what I'm talking about. And find true happiness and contentment. I'm just going to say this. I think it's fascinating that um, throughout the ages, the church has had a really strong answer to this question. And we don't talk about it a lot these days. Um, and that is the next life. 
That is the hope of eternal rest and peace and resurrection and happiness. Like every age has lived with this gap between desires and experience. And I think, I think one of the great weaknesses of our modern age is that we try to figure out how to bridge that gap um, without how to live with that tension without availing ourselves of probably the richest resource that exists to be content in this life, which is to look forward to the next. And if you read the saints of the last 2,000 years, this is what they will come back to again and again. And I wonder if it's not connected to this lie we've been sold in the modern world that anything can be fixed, right? Anything, right? Your health, your education, um, your love life, um, your whatever, right? You just need an expert, you know? There's research out there. Uh, There's a book. There's a guru, and you can just fix it. And I think what previous generations have known more clearly is that there's just an immense amount of things in our lives that we can't fix, right? And maybe it's because they were less wealthy and less um, lived lives that were less luxurious and, you know, it was more likely you're going to die in the next, you know, year by who knows what than it is for us. I don't know. I don't know all the reasons for why that is. But I do think that as modern people, we, we, I think, would be wise, as I say here, to humble ourselves and recover the rich heritage of the church throughout the ages, which has always, always, always fixed its attention on the life to come. Jeremiah Burroughs, a good Puritan from the 16th century, he says, one drop of the sweetness of heaven is enough to take away all the sourness and bitterness of all the afflictions in the world. Like, I feel like modern people are tempted to read a statement like that and be like, oh, that's nice, you know. But come on. But come on, really? Right? But Jeremiah Burroughs meant this, you know? Like, he was being serious when he said that. And I think that's something we should really think about. Like, this isn't, like, superficial spirituality. Like, this is Christian spirituality, um, biblical spirituality. Calvin says, The happiness promised us in Christ does not consist in outward advantages, such as leading a joyous and peaceful life, having rich possessions, being safe from all harm, and abounding with delights such as the flesh commonly longs for. No, our happiness belongs to the heavenly life. The heavenly life. Calvin, hence the reason why faith is so rare in the world. Calvin, always the optimist, right? (laughs) Nothing being more difficult for our sluggishness than to surmount obstacles and striving for the prize of our high calling. To immense... To the immense load of miseries which almost overwhelm us are added the jeers of profane men who assail us for our simplicity. When spontaneously renouncing the allurements of the present life, we seem in seeking a happiness which lies hid from us to catch at a fleeting shadow. In short, we are beset above and below, behind and before, with violent temptations which our minds would all be together unable to withstand. Were they not, what, able to fix all these things, right, able to navigate them, that tension. No, were they not set free from earthly objects and devoted to the heavenly life? Calvin's saying this is the only way you're going to be happy, really. 
because the world we live in is broken and sinful and fallen and people die and people get sideways with each other and all sorts of terrible things happen. How are you going to be happy, he says, if you are devoted to the heavenly life, though it is apparently remote from us? Wherefore, he alone has made solid progress in the gospel, Calvin said, who has acquired the habit of meditating continually on the blessed resurrection. Do you meditate continually on the blessed resurrection? The new heavens and the new earth, the promise of the life to come, because I would say that is how you're going to be able to do this. How are you going to, in a proper way, detach yourself from the things of this world and the disappointments that you have? So just close with this. The keeping of the commandment, friends, it comes, it's not only a command, it also is a promise, I think, an implied promise. It comes with a rich, rich blessing if we, if we do it, if, we, if by God's grace we can keep it. Because I think keeping the 10th commandment will actually bring us happiness and peace, true happiness, true peace. And I want to say this is really available to us as believers. Like it is really possible in this life to live in the midst of all the, the things that are hard and the things that will go wrong and the things that are stressful and the things that are challenging. It really is possible to live a life of happiness and peace in the midst of all these things. I just want you to know that. Sometimes I think we, we, we just settle for far too little as believers and say, well, the world's just crazy, and so I'm crazy, and like, everybody's just crazy. Well, that, that is true to some extent, but that's not, like, read the Bible, you know? Um, read Christian history. Like, it is possible to live a contented, peaceful, grateful life in the midst of whatever your circumstance is. God does truly offer this to you. Um, I want you to know that. And I, I, want, I want that for you. I want that for myself. Um, and I believe that God will give it to us if we ask it. Let's stand and pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and for this 10th commandment. Pray that you would help us to meditate on it deeply and to consider its application and meaning for our lives. That you would give us the grace that we need to be humble and to be grateful, to be content, and to trust you um, with all things. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.